Welcome to the Inspired Women Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Hall, psychology student, wife, and mama four. On this podcast, I share helpful life tips and stories from inspirational women. Warning, sometimes we chat about taboo topics and drop some F-bombs. Thank you for tuning in with me today. Enjoy the episode. Hey, everyone. Today, I'm here with Gloria. Gloria J. Romero is a professor uh, emeritus. Every time I look at that word, I'm like, I know what this is (laughs) of psychology. I'm actually in school for psychology right now. I'm in my master's degree. So and hopefully going for my PhD after this. Yes. So uh, she's at California State University and the first woman ever to have held the position of majority leader of the California State Senate. She also served as chair of the Senate Budget and Fiscal Review Subcommittee on Education. A staunch advocate for education reform, Dr. Romero has worked to expand school choice options for parents and served as founder and strategic planner of the California Center for Parent Empowerment. Born in Barstow, California, Romero was one of six children raised by a rail yard worker and a stay-at-home mom. After receiving her associate's degree from Barstow Community College and a BA and MA from California State University, Romero went on to earn a PhD in psychology, which is why we say doctor, from the University of California, Riverside. In 1998, she was elected to the California State Assembly and the Senate in 2001, serving as majority leader from 2005 to 2008. She continues to write on politics and education reform and teaches courses on both subjects. Well, that's a mouthful. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. Well, thank you. Thank uh, you for your inspiration and invitation to come on board. Absolutely. When I was reading through your bio before we hopped on, I was like, PhD in psychology. That is my goal in life. (laughs) If you dream it, you can attain it. Yes, I absolutely. I want to be a professor. That's that's what I'm going. That's why I'm going to school. Um, So Yay. Psychology in a particular area or yeah, uh, social, area. social psychology. That's mine. Hello. Yes. Personality. Look at that. And we were meant to be. <laughs> well, Let me you know, we can, I'll be happy to give you uh, any insight that you might need. Thank as you. Progress. I really appreciate that. I live in Connecticut. So not in about a year, I will be applying to uh, PH, social psychology PhD programs in Connecticut um, because my spouse's uh, job, I'm kind of location <laughs> like limited. Uh, I have kids too, so I can't just be like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to move to the middle of nowhere to get my PhD, <laughs> Yep. which means there's some pretty heavy hitters around here that I'm going to be applying for. But um, my goal is the University of Connecticut. They have a stigma lab and stigma is uh, a big interest of mine. Perfect. Very much needed and more research to be done. So you're the person to do it. Well, thank you. Well, Gloria, thank you for coming on the podcast today. And we, you talked a lot in your bio about getting into politics. And that's actually where I would like to start is like, what got you into politics? Like that's, that's a lot. Um, just following it from a, you know, back here perspective, it's a lot. So tell us what got you into it. Okay. And actually I am an accidental politician. (laughs) 
ever thought I would end up as the majority leader of the California State Senate. But I was always very involved with voter registration. I, you know, I would be active. I would go out, learn who the candidates were. I would support them. Looking back on it, a lot of it is traditional stuff that women do. Lick envelopes, make phone calls, you know, blah, blah, blah. Do the voter registration drives. So I used to do a lot of that. And then I was a professor at the university, very involved in my community, active in issues, especially education. I was very interested in recruiting students, getting access to uh, students. But the day that I became, first thought about politics, I think it's a great story. I was actually cleaning my closet. <laughs> so I think it's a little <laughs> bit indicative. I was cleaning my closet. It was the middle of summer. I have this vivid recollection of cleaning the closet and my phone rang. So I answered it and it was a friend. Uh, she was a professor at East LA College. And I remember her voice. She was like the voice of authority. And she said, Gloria, I think you should run for the LA Community College Board of Trustees. Now, by the way, this board is the largest uh, community college in the world. Okay? Oh my in gosh. Nation, in the world. I knew of it because I had been a product of the community colleges, but mm -hmm. she said that, and I have this recollection. I had my little rag and I was cleaning it out and it just like clicked. And I just had an aha moment and I dropped the rag and I said, but of course. And so I left the cleaning of my closet and I went on and sort of the story goes from there, but that was what first brought me into politics cleaning my closet and then deciding we got to clean up politics. Yeah. I, I went to a community college as well. Um, it was a, a pretty good size one. they had several campuses. It was uh, Tidewater community college in Virginia. And I tell you people, people overlook community college, you know, I mean, one very inexpensive, you can get those like basic courses out of the way real easy. And you earn a degree while you're there. So, I mean, I hope to be like you and end up with four degrees. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So yeah, community college are so important. So how did that transition from being on the board of a community college to state Senate? Like that seems like a, a pretty significant leap. <laughs> well, I started at the community college. I was elected in 1995. And then what happened in California was that there had been a Supreme Court challenge on term limits for oh. legislators. And not all states have term limits, but in right. California there was. And so basically uh, it came down the decision that uh, there was going to be term limits in California. And it just so happened that the district in which I was living that member was going to be termed out like right away. And that happened in 1998. You know, I was on the board for a couple of years. So in 1998, there was an election. I was the professor. Education was very important. And, um, you know, I talked with some folks and others and they said, Gloria, let's run. Let's highlight education, access, you know, to education. You know, I represented East L.A., strong demands for education, especially mm -hmm. for Latino youth and families that really had never had access to college before. So right. I ran. So I ran for that. I was elected in a very tough election. Then in 2001, 
there was a resignation from the Senate in the seat that I happened to eventually run. So it was an it was a, a special election was called mm-hmm. and I ran for that seat. So voila, I ran for the Senate. I won and I served until 2010 when because of term limits, it kicks in and I was out of office. Oh, my goodness. You know, I, I am torn on term limits, right? Because some people just sit in there and do nothing for years and years and years and just get reelected because like they've been in there and, and, you know, people are up, up on like, who's doing what, and, you know, they're like, oh, you know, I, I'm a creature of habit. And so like, if it's working, why fix it? But then if they're not doing anything, you know, so I'm like torn between like, should we have term limits? Should we not have term limits? I don't know. I'm torn on the subject. (laughs) And overall, I do favor term limits. I do think it provides more of a citizen legislature. Mm. Um, Noticeably, Congress does not have term limits. And I really think it's about time. But I think the question becomes make them reasonable. Like California's term limits under the time that I was there, they were, I mean, it was really fast turnover. It was ridiculous. Later on, there were some reforms and they extended the time, I think, ultimately to 14 years. I mean, I think something, you know, 14, 15, 20 years, maybe max. But when you see folks who like exactly like you said, they've been there forever. And it's just once you're in office, it really is hard unless you like go to prison or get something done in the meantime, right? It's hard to get people out. So I do favor them. But then let's be reasonable with the term of the limit. Right. I was thinking, I'm glad you brought up Congress because like first thing came to mind was like Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi. They have been in yeah, I think when I looked it up, they've been in almost longer than I've been alive. So, like, to me, that's a little ridiculous to be in that long. Like you need to have like change and especially if like things aren't getting done, like they're not really getting done right now. It's like, you're just like, come on, let's change it up. Get some new people in here. Get some new ideas. Like yeah. I, I, you know, sometimes people can be super, uh, I feel like when you're in politics for like 40 years, you could be super disconnected about what's going on with people like everyday citizens. Um, so, I mean, especially when you're making like six figures every year, like you could be super disconnected with like, what are people in poverty doing? But anyways, uh, that's me getting off of track. That's, that's my frustrations with like not having term limits. It's like, if you can be in office longer than I've been alive, that's, that's a problem. Um, Share that view with you. <laughs> so education, I agree with you that it's important for everyone to have access, access to quality education. You see a lot of disparities in um, areas in poverty compared to more higher income areas when it comes to education, access to like new textbooks, internet access, Chromebooks, like where I live um, my children have Chromebooks at school. Like, and when we went, uh, they went remote from the pandemic, like they could bring those Chromebooks home with them. They didn't need to, cause we had computers here, but then I have people I know who live in lower income areas, like more impoverished, impoverished areas. Their kids didn't have Chromebooks to bring home with them. Their kids didn't have access to these things. Some kids, didn't have access to the internet, like, and how do you do your school remote? So I, I'm, I'm right there with you on the access to quality education. 
Right. And that's why, given my backdrop, when I got into the legislature, I really focused on education reform because what I found was as a professor, this was the four-year university, California State University, Los Angeles, um, I found that even when kids, and I call them kids still, you know, but you know, the students <laughs> graduated high school, they got to the university. Most of them were first generation, you know, college students. They were so happy to come in. They were proud. They had made it. They had done it. They were going to college. But sadly, what I found was they couldn't read. I mean, mm. they couldn't write. They were forced to take remedial classes. And so any scholarship um, you know, financial aid they had gotten was used for these remedial courses that didn't count towards the degree. So yeah. after a while, they ended up dropping out. So that's really what got me started in looking at education for the entire pipeline was my direct experience as a professor seeing that, especially in so many of these, uh, you know, um, high poverty communities, that the quality of the K through 12 system was sending students that were almost just destined to fail. And yeah. I really took it upon. So, you know, my claim to fame and people know me in the legislature, they know me for both education and prison reform. And the two go together because if we don't educate, we will incarcerate boys, girls, yeah. et cetera. But it's so important, especially for girls and women to really have an education because, you know, as we know, 50% of marriages end in divorce. And uh, how do we then uh, make sure that we earn, uh, have a living? Oftentimes following the divorce, women raise the children. So we not only become single, single like men, we become single heads of household. So education mm -hmm. is particularly important for women, I believe. Yeah, I, I'm glad you uh, brought up prison reform because I, I don't know if my listeners have heard about the school to prison pipeline, right? Um, is that, is, you said, um, education and prison reform for you go hand in hand. Is that what you're talking about? Absolutely. Because for example, if we look at it, uh, prison in California and I've been in virtually every prison in California for nothing that I've done, make sure you <laughs> understand that. But I used to oversee the prison reforms for California and 70% of the inmates do not have a high school diploma. So, you, you know, you have to do, I mean, I believe in personal responsibility, but you have to look at those correlates. And so education at all levels is important. You're absolutely right. The school to prison pipeline. We know from the data that we have many schools across the country, but in California, where I am from, that just essentially function as dropout factories. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why, you know, when you look at the numbers, the statistics where, you know, 80% of, for example, African-American youth in California are not reading at grade level or can't do math and 70% for Latino children. It's just, how can you ever become a doctor or an architect or be accepted into a graduate program in psychology? So we really have to address education, which to me is always, you know, it's what makes us equal in America. And it's the key to the American dream. That's why I feel so passionate about it. It shouldn't be a privilege. It should be a right for everybody Absolutely. to have quality education, right? Yeah. We know public education is accessible, accessible. I put that in quotations because there's still things, barriers that can get in the way, but um, public education is accessible to United States citizens, right? And, but the problem is, is not all of that education is equal across the board, depending on, you know, I, as I mentioned before, the area you live in, the amount of taxes people pay, like 
people talk about where I live about how astronomical astronomical the taxes are, and I'm like, but look at all this. Like, look at the school. Look at what they have access to. Like, that's where your tax dollars are going to. But like, if you live in an, an area where not as much taxes are being paid, then you're not getting the same access to those things, which isn't fair. Right. Like I, it, it isn't fair that uh, honestly, I think nowadays with technology that uh, internet access should be something that's everybody's able to have because you need it now. Like there's no way that you can do the things without having that access. And there's not as many uh, public libraries where people used to go when I was younger to access the internet. There's, there's so much that goes into this. Right. And I think that's where our current first lady has really, I think, taken a leadership role on community colleges and access and taking a look at the ways in which we access education increasingly through the internet. But then you do need the access. We have digital divides and all of this. And that's why also, too, I believe strongly in school choice, that it, it can't that that old mode of just saying, here's your zip code and here's where you go. And it doesn't matter if your school is is chronically underperforming, I would just say failing, and the state education officials know it, it's still your track there, you have to go there, they don't get out. And so I think that we've seen a lot of innovation on education savings accounts, charter schools, magnet schools, accredited homeschooling. And I think with, with the pandemic, one thing that I think is actually positive that's come out of it is that parents have been very engaged. They're seeing how what their kids are learning. Some are happy, others are not. But I think parents have really recognized their role as being what I call the educational architects of their children's futures. And even if we disagree on the politics of, you know, who we support, I think everybody should agree, yes, parents should be uh, the first person to really understand and help promote and direct their children's education. So that's actually, I think, something positive that has come out of, you know, a couple of years of just health concerns and misery. Yeah, yeah. And knowing and seeing where your, your kids struggle, right. I have a son who did, he did great at home. He did great. And, you know, if it wasn't for the social aspect, I'm sure. And the fact that I, I mentally don't think I could handle homeschooling him. I'm sure he would do great with it. His twin sister. No, no. She is like her mama. I don't do as well online learning. I need to be in a seat. I need to be interacting. I need all of the things. And she was the same way. She really struggled with the remote learning and everything. And her teacher and I like worked together to try to get her like to stay on track and get all her things done and everything like that. But it was difficult. And, and we have to take that into account that children are all different. And, and how they learn are different. And you really didn't, I really didn't see it before as a parent until the pandemic happened and then their remote learning. And then I'm like, oh, I have to take on like a whole new role in this whole thing. (laughs) Like I didn't go to school for this. Can we open up the schools now? Right. And we do appreciate then the role of teaching. And the the fact is, is that the overwhelming number of teachers across the country are women. It is professionals. There are areas where we need to really reform and revamp and change. But it is a profession that largely women have 
chosen to enter into. Although, as I point out in the book, there's there's a big discrepancy between sort of the rank and file, the the, the membership of the workforce, and who eventually moves up the ladder and become mm-hmm. the executives, the superintendents, and many of the double standards there that women in executive positions face, regardless of the sector in which we are employed. Yeah, I mean, every, yeah, like you said, everywhere we we still we still struggle with that uh, sexism going on, where uh, women struggle to reach certain ranks. And I I read um, a book about that, and it was very interesting about the reasons why. And even in 2021, where we're struggling with this, but I mean, teachers they do so much, and they're so underpaid, <laughs> so much. Wow. Right. And again, you find a lot of reforms where teachers are looking for other choices, including ways in which we get paid. Others want to say, let's revise the contract. So maybe there's a little bit more uh, performance pay for the really, really you know, strong. But there's ways in which we can make win-wins and really not have it just one size fits all because education should be dynamic and yeah. teachers, I think that's why t- many teachers are choosing to leave many of the traditional district schools and go to a charter school or a magnet school where they can be a little bit more innovative and have different options uh, by which they are judged ultimately. Yeah. So to pivot a little bit, what was your experience like being in California State Senate? We talked a little bit about sexism. Did you come up against that barrier? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) So let me give you one example. Okay, everybody knows that in elected office, you have to raise money, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Money is the mother's milk of politics. And so you (laughs) need to raise money, which is also one of the reasons why so many women do not prevail, do not run, do not succeed, because you still have the donor pipeline. And this expectation somehow that women just aren't going to be as strong overall. Now, we've seen more and more women running for office, so that's great. Mm -hmm. But uh, one of the things I experienced, and this was in, remember, I was in the Assembly, the California State Assembly, before I went to the Senate. I was elected in 1998, so some time ago, but yet it's, I could see it like it was yesterday. And I was doing... um, uh, I, I met with my the person who was going to be raising money for me, like, or not for me, but with me, guiding me. They call it a fundraiser. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and this was a very respected person, very reputable, a lot of people. She had lots of clients in Sacramento. I was stunned, though, when she actually advised me that I should hike my skirt up. That I should go hang out at the bars a little bit more, you know, be a little bit more flirtatious because I'm very serious, you know, again, too, and it kind of ties into the theme of the book. I should be a little bit more flirty, but hike my skirt. I'm thinking I am not a hooker. You know, I, this is not the sex industry, but I was with a straight face. I was advised that I should basically go out there and essentially, you know, don't forget about selling my ideas and my leadership, but essentially sell my body. It stunned me. I I was really shocked at that, but that was not the last time. There was others, you'd see the disparity. And then when I ran for the Senate, remember I told you it was a special election. So Mm -hmm. a little bit unexpected, you have to kind of hustle to get, you know, to say I'm going to run. I remember that there was another, uh, he was a male uh, assemblyman who was looking at it. 
And he had been in Sacramento longer than I. So not surprisingly, I was told like, stand down, little girl. It's not your turn. You know, blah, blah, blah. You can wait. He's got a family, you know, blah, blah, blah. He's oh, this. my. So basically tell me to wait. And I said, no, I am not going to go tell him to wait. Like I'm putting my credentials up and I think I can beat him. And I think I would be a better member. And voila, I you know, I won, but those are the kinds of messages. So even fast forward to today, because, you know, I've been out of office since 2010, out of elected office, although I've been very active in the state on different initiatives and reforms, uh, we still find inequities in terms of the percentage of women in the legislature. And I point out in the book, just the inequities in terms of the overall numbers in, in, in the United States, whether it's Congress or in the executive branch of the government. But, but we still get those messages. And sometimes they're overt. Sometimes they're subtle. It's also the way in which we are depicted. Like, you know, in the book, I talk about how women are given attributes like, oh, we're bossy, we're bitchy, we're not likable, yep. we're, we're angry women. And the men can yell and scream, but they're just leaders. You know, they're demonstrating leadership. And I find that um, you know, I was called, I remember one time I was labeled by the Sacramento Bee as I was bombastic. And I thought because I use my voice and I talk, but I'm bombastic, which I think was the precursor to being an angry woman that we use today. Mm -hmm. No, I, I agree. I, you see that, like you mentioned earlier in all levels, right? Uh, women, when we're outspoken and we are sharing our ideas and maybe we're getting a little loud. I have a very loud voice uh, and deep voice for a woman. And so <laughs> sometimes I can sound like I'm yelling and I'm not, but you know, you get called a bitch. You, you get called that you're being too sassy and like all these things where we've kind of like, you know, taken that back. I'm like, yes, I am. Thank you. Uh, but if a man says, if man does the same thing, they're, they're a great leader. And oh my gosh, we got to listen to them. And they're just using their voice. Look, I mean, to bring up um, an example is, so uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez got called a bitch by another member. I can't remember what his name is. And it kind of got like brushed under the rug, like no big deal. Cause she's very, she's very outspoken. She's, you know, whether you like her or don't like her, she's very outspoken and, and she gets called a bitch like by a, another member of the house for stating her opinion for being outspoken like that. And, you know, that like stuck in my head when you were talking about that, I was like, yes, we still see it every day in 2021, even in the highest levels of government. Look at how people have talked about Kamala Harris when, you know, she was running for office and, and putting her down. And, you know, they had a big fit when Dr. Jill Biden, you know, was going by Dr. Jill Biden. And they're like, oh, she doesn't need to be doing that. And, you know, there's all these little microaggressions that happen. Absolutely. And, and I point out that again, too, doesn't matter the politics. It doesn't matter I, if you're Republican, Democrat, Independent, <clears throat> But something that's shared with women in elected office, as well as women in corporate America, because even, for example, as I point out, Carly Fiorina, I mean, she was criticized not for her record, but how she looked and again, mm -hmm. how she spoke. And we find again, too, that the former editor of The New York Times 
uh, when there, uh, she left the organization, people told her, oh, well, you know what? She's like basically a bitch, quite frankly. I mean, this was somebody who had led the New York Times to top Pulitzer Prizes in publishing, and yet she's being shown the door. So you see it across the board. It, it struck me that when we looked at the 2020 election, uh, doesn't matter who we supported, but virtually every woman that was running, whether it was Elizabeth Warren, uh, Klobuchar, Harris, uh, they were called angry. They were mm -hmm. called nasty. Uh, we talked about them cackling. And you think a cackle is something a witch does, which rhymes with bitch, by the way, right? Yeah. But men might laugh. Women, we cackle. That's what Hillary Clinton was told. And, and so you just look around across the board overall, and we have to start thinking about these are stereotypes Ac around the world. I point out uh, in the book, the first uh, female prime minister of Canada who talked about how she was criticized, how mm -hmm. she spoke, how she led. And basically the expectation was, well, that's how a man does it, but you're a woman. You're supposed to be a little sweetie. So if you talk loud or if you laugh, or my God, if you have some gray in your hair, I mean, we are scrutinized how we look, how we act, how we sound. And then we're told basically, and we just don't like you because you're not sugar and spice and everything nice. So it was really quite a bit of a difference overall. Bernie Sanders, and I like Bernie Sanders. I do too, yeah. <laughs> but you know what, though? It's, you know, he was basically the one that would yell at everybody. But yeah, we he does him. all the time. <laughs> but, but he became the affable, lovable. He's just like the elderly Einstein looking, you know, white hair flying. But we loved him. But Elizabeth Warren, oh, no, if she yelled, oh, she's nasty and mean. Mm-hmm. And she's, I mean, she's like the female Bernie Sanders. Like they, they have very, very similar platforms, very similar platforms. Uh, and you know, the thing is, it's a double-edged sword for women because like, if we are sweet and nice, we're not taking us serious enough. We're not taking our job serious enough. And that hurts us. Or if we do take it serious enough, um, I, I brought up Harris earlier as, she got told like people were saying she slept her way to the top. That's how she got up there. Right. Like men, men can climb the ranks and it's fine. They didn't, you know, they got it on their own accord. But like, if women do there, there's reasons like, Oh, she slept her way or she stabbed everybody in the back or, you know, whatnot. It's, we, we can't, we can't win because we right. never did it on our own accord, according to other people. And these, these attributes, these stereotypes really disproportionately affect women. So, you know, that's why I argue that, uh, and I point out, I, I bring to light in this book, the story of Anne Hopkins, who I think so few people know about, but Anne Hopkins was the first woman who went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and had a ruling in 1989 that basically mm -hmm. said gender, that discrimination on the basis of stereotyping, like saying you're too macho looking or you talk too loud or, or, right. or you, know, you swear, you don't wear makeup. 
all the stereotyping of what we think a woman should look like, that that is illegal and that is discrimination. That was 1989. And so few people know her story. I call her the Rosa Parks of the end gender bias, you know, discrimination movement. And I want people to know her story because it took a personal toll on her, but it was a seven year journey against Price Waterhouse and a historic ruling that today basically enabled me to file my claim of gender discrimination. And we have found in recent years that, you know, 42% of women report that they experience gender discrimination. Mm -hmm. So I think the important thing is that it hasn't ended. Ann Hopkins opened the door with that Supreme Court. I encourage women, file your claim. We can't just keep quiet about it. And I know it's hard and it's painful and there's repercussions. And some women like Ann Hopkins have the resources to go all the way into court. Others might do an arbitration agreement, et cetera. There's pros and cons overall. But I think it's important for us to file because if we don't, it just stays quiet. And the more that we're aware of the story and of stereotyping as one of the oldest sort of subtle forms of discrimination, if we don't stop it, it'll just keep going and we will not see women not only smashing through the doors, but staying in these corporate leadership roles, whether it's politics or in the a world of business. And, and we need more female perspectives. <laughs> there, should, there should be like a share here, right? There's, I mean, there's like 50%. I mean, I don't know the exact percentage of how many women and how many men there are in the United States. But let's say it's 50-50. It's not, we're not represented in the same way of in the higher echelons as men are, right? Like it's it's a big deal, right? We I mean, and yes, we should we should celebrate women getting to those places, but it's it's so rare, so rare to see a woman in in that sort of position. So you mentioned that if I can just throw in this one oh, yeah. statistic that I think is so interesting that there are more men named John who are running uh, S&P 1500 companies than there are women of any other name. I mean, just imagine <laughs> that overall. And it just shows the discrepancy and catalyst and their reports on looking at sort of getting some type of equity in terms of women in the executive suites, the leadership, corporations. It may take another 400 years to achieve some type of parity if we don't start addressing that discrepancy now and the stereotyping that we believe uh, leads to the cost of women maybe trying to get in the door, but then we don't stay there because we get run out because we're just not likable. So it really is a big challenge to get there, stay there, and to really tackle gender bias for what it is and the price that all women pay for it. Yeah, the, it's it's funny that you keep bringing up stereotyping because I'm like, oh, that's part of stigma too, is like it you know, stigma has a stereotype, prejudice, and discrimination. Well, that can not just happen in the space. It can happen in all spaces, right? It can happen in gender, race, mental health, disability. There are so many spaces that stigma happens. Um, so it's, it's just it, bringing it full circle in my head because I'm like, yes, this is what I'm into. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, so you said something about how you filed your own gender discrimination. What what was that? What happened? Um, I can't give a lot of details overall. Okay. All I can say is the matter was resolved. Uh, 
but but I am able to talk about the the uh, double standards. And again, to in my career, what mm-hmm. I have seen literally being told that I essentially lead like a man, like, oh, my God, that I should sit down, that I stand while leading, that I project strengths, that I have high expectations. I use my hands. I was literally criticized for using my hands. I do it all the time. I do it all the time. <laughs> exactly. And it's almost the idea of, I mean, are they telling me to sit down, shut up? And basically that I was just not likable. I was told that I was like too strong uh, uh, to be a leader. Oh my gosh. Like what era are we in? We have women running for the presidency of the United States, but we're telling women that we're too strong. Like what is wrong with a strong woman? And so basically I go through and, and I talk about some of the experience. And then I talked with other women who said, this is exactly what happened to me. You know, he's called a leader. She's called abrasive. You know, it's expected for him to lead, to be authoritative, to do direct communication. Women, because largely of socialization, think sugar Mm -hmm. and spice and everything nice, we're kind of told, oh, we're going to hurt somebody's feelings. And in doing research for writing the book, and you'll find this when you do the studies on stigma, I found so many psychological studies where we evaluate men and males and females and attributions for leadership. Mm -hmm. And we find that basically we will accept a strong male leader, but strong and female somehow still doesn't go together. So that's where we end up saying we don't like them. What's shocking is that today, uh, you know, right, you kind of have to question, is there a sisterhood or not? I don't think there is, quite frankly. <laughs> males and females both say we'd rather work for a male boss than a female boss. Mm-hmm. And the issue is, oh, because she can be a bitch. I mean, it's we still do this today, even though Ann Hopkins went to the Supreme Court, took seven years, got a decision in 1989, and yet here we are. We're still dealing with gender bias, discrimination based on stereotyping. And I found books that actually counsel women going into leadership, executive positions, like, well, maybe you should soften your voice. Maybe Mm. you should do that. And I'm like, no. I mean, can you imagine we told Bernie Sanders, you know, bro, can you soften your voice? We don't do that. Yeah. And we shouldn't do that for a woman. And I don't think women should, we should be our, our authentic selves. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's how we're indoctrinated, right? Growing up is, is we're indoctrinated that women who present a certain way, that's, that's not okay. You're, you're breaking the norms. You're breaking the expectations that a woman had. You brought up not wearing makeup. I don't wear makeup. Um, a rare, rare. And if I do, it's not a full face, you know, uh, it's having a loud voice, right. Uh, You know, they, they, they will call you names. They will, you know, make, make like little comments that like, oh, you, you must be this, or you must be that because like you have such a like outspoken personality. I actually have had people say to my spouse, like you you got the reins on her? Like, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like control your little woman. That's essentially what we're hearing in the highest levels of corporate America and in the political arena. And, and I'm not saying we're talking about being a tyrant or anything like that, but, but the point is, is that, and the research bears this out, we evaluate men and women differently. We mm-hmm. expect it. We're socialized this way 
Uh, and so I go back in the book and talk about where this begins, parents, schools, et cetera, how we look, media, movies. I have a whole chapter talking about Hollywood and the depiction of women uh, in film. And it gets even worse as women age. We expect women to basically, you know, if a woman says something, oh, she must be menopausal. I mean, so you find all these reasons to discount and minimize and trivialize and then get rid of women in leadership roles who are strong. And as you pointed out early on, if we're not strong, then basically we're not doing the job. Uh, so we have to almost like this Goldilocks dilemma that women face to say, well, if I do my job and I'm strong, then I'm thrown out because people think, oh my gosh, she's trying to act like a man and she's like a witch and everything else. And I don't like her. But yet if I don't command and lead and be strong, I'm not going to get the results or the respect. So this is a real dilemma, a double bind, we call it, that women in these high positions of leadership face. And it's still going on today. And it starts really young. So I've been fighting I've been fighting this battle since my, my, my youngest are 10. So since they were in preschool and I'm just, I'm having to like undo all of this learning they're learning at school. And I'm not saying necessarily from teachers, but from classmates and stuff like that, it started, I'll never forget my, my, my daughter, their boy, girl twins. She came home and she goes, I'm really sad. And I was like, why? And she was like, because green can't be my favorite color because it's a boy color and I'm a girl. And I'm like, who the hell told you that? <laughs> like, right. And it's something, it's small little things like that, that build up over time, but it starts so young. Absolutely. I mean, toy socialization, what we're encouraged to play with or not play with and the stigmas that get associated if, for example, a boy says, hey, I want to play with a doll or I want to do it. And we've become more tolerant as a society, but you saw it recently. It still is so there. And so it is really one where, you know, we have a lot of work to do. And that's why, you know, partly uh, this notion of gender bias is one that it, it really plays a very uh, punitive role in how women try to advance in the workforce because we're still measured by um, attributes that don't belong, shouldn't belong anymore after a Supreme Court ruling that says you can't discriminate on the basis of stereotypes. I mean, Anne Hopkins, who filed suit, she was actually told that she should go to charm school oh, in Lord. order to become more feminine because she was too macho. She was trying to act like a man. She was a successful representative for her company but she was told, oh, you know what? You're, you're just too manly. Go to charm school. And today we're told, like, sit down, shut up. Don't use your hands. Don't use a strong voice. I mean, it's almost the same thing. Yeah. And not, you know, so much has changed, but we haven't come far enough. Like, that's, yeah. I say this all the time. Like, we are still stuck in so many ways 50 years ago. And, and yet we've made a lot of progress and, but not enough, like in, in 50 years, we should see a lot more progress, but we're not, we're not seeing it. Right. Well, the catalyst report says that the rate at which we see this disparity, especially of women in executive roles, it could take another 400 years before we see anything. And we're not talking about a quota system, but just looking at representation, given the, um, the, you know, women will get the MBA, they'll go into uh, senior management, 
but they won't smash the glass ceiling. They won't, and they say it's not even a glass ceiling. It's this whole labyrinth that you have to maneuver, but it's difficult then to stay there because you then you start dealing with the subtleties, the overt sexism. We've largely gotten a good handle on and we're tackling and we're winning, but it's the subtle, the stereotyping, the attributes, the, you know, the, the, the things that we're talking about that Ann Hopkins fought over, how we are portrayed and then told, oh, no, 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 you can't have that, that kind of a woman uh, leading. So th that's a new era, even though she already won this battle in 1989. It's up to our generation and others to really bring up her name, talk about her, share her story, and look at where we find it, because we find it everywhere in corporate America. So before we wrap up the podcast, uh, tell us about your book. You've mentioned it a couple times. I don't, it wasn't mentioned in your bio. So tell us, tell us the name, where can people get it? What's it about a little bit? That sort of thing. The book, the book is called Just Not That Likable. The price <laughs> all women pay for gender bias. You can go on amazon.com, find it on books. Post Hill Press publishes it. It's also an audio book. And I read the book myself. And basically the book, my daughter is the one who inspired me learning about what I was going through in my career. She said, mom, you've got to write a book. And that's when I started doing the research, looking at it, talking with others. I learned the Ann Hopkins story, which I myself didn't know, but I thought it's so timely. And today, as we look at it at the political level with, again, irrespective of politics, we keep hearing that we don't like this person. We don't like that person. We don't like Hillary. We don't like Amy. We don't like, we don't like women leaders, quite frankly. And Margaret Thatcher went through the same thing. Indira Gandhi. So this is something internationally where women, you know, we want strong leaders, but then when they're women, mm, maybe not so much. So looking at the likability. So I wrote the book. This is the first book that's been written about this topic, cover to cover. Sheryl Sandberg in her very influential book, Lean In. She devotes That's the book I was thinking yes. of earlier. <laughs> well, she devotes one chapter to it. Mine is the entire book. And I, I it's a fun read. But I provide the statistics, the facts, the cases, and then I give like I go into great detail about Ann Hopkins because I really want people to know her story. So I hope people will read it, learn about it. Uh, it's written largely for women, but men need to read it as well because it's really for all of us. Women alone can't be the gender police. We really need to get it for everybody. But women pay a disproportionate price for gender bias being used in the workplace against women advancing and uh, leading organizations. Absolutely. So as we wrap up the podcast today, what would you like to leave the Inspired Women audience with? Uh, inspire yourself and be, find someone to be inspired by. And I think more and more that we look at it, we have so much in our own lives that we should feel inspired by ourselves. Uh, a lot of times people will say, oh, I really haven't done anything. No, 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 no. Think about it. I mean, what we do, how we do it, the courage with which we often stand up uh, as moms, uh, as, as sisters, as you know, spouses, partners, whatever we are, we do great things on a daily basis. And I really think being authentic to oneself and not being told to stand down or change how we talk you know, I think I think leadership and is about being who we are and not being afraid to show who we are to the world. And that world will be receptive to us. 
Absolutely. I always say that uh, every woman has a story. I mean, every person has a story, but part of this podcast is every woman has a story. That's why I don't have like, you must have a hundred thousand followers or, or some ridiculous requirements. I don't care on the application. I don't ask for any of that stuff because I care about the story. Every woman has a story to share and your story is just as important as the last week's story and the story before that and in every story is important. So Gloria, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much and pursue your studies and uh, I'll be happy to help out. Thank you for being a part of the Inspired Women audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating review. And don't forget to share this out with somebody who could use some inspiration today. Tag us at Inspired Women Podcast, both on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day.